This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Sean Williams. He's one of my favorite journalists. He's written for Harper's, The New Yorker, all over the place. He's going to be speaking about his time inside the battle for Marawi in the Philippines. That started in May 2017 when Filipino ISIS fighters stormed the city of Marawi, uh, captured it and laid siege to it. The military were fighting, trying to get them out of there until October the same year. It was a long drawn out battle and basically the whole city was flattened. This episode is sponsored by DefensePost.com. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us at Patreon.com slash Popular Front. For all the other episodes, visit popularfront.co. Just, just explain, you know, what was the Battle of Marawi and why did that happen? You know, this kind of ISIS cell in the Philippines just took over the city. I guess the short story is that uh, last May, um, this kind of splinter cell associated with ISIS uh, kind of just mobilised in this one city, a very famous Islamic city in the southern part of uh, the Philippines, uh, and pretty much just overran the local forces immediately, you know, raised the flag of ISIS in the city centre, uh, and just hold out there for months, uh, keeping the army at bay. Uh, even the Marines didn't really know what to do with them. Uh, and yeah, it just, uh, they took a lot of hostages and it became a really bloody and really, uh, really destructive battle that took the whole country by, by surprise, really. How did that happen? Because I think a lot of people don't particularly realise that there has been kind of a jihadi uh, presence in the Philippines for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that it's been going on for centuries, really. Um, the the southern southern main island of the Philippines, Mindanao, has been quite a quarter populated by Muslims uh, for for many many centuries. Um, when the Spanish came and conquered, they ca- they called them the Moro, the same as what they called the Moors of Africa, um, and they kind of started this cycle of repression and 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 kind of subjugation. That continued all the way up, uh, locals would say, until the modern day. Uh, obviously, Manila, the capital of the Philippines, is a long, long, long way uh, from Mindanao, separated by dozens of seas uh, and islands. So there's always been this long-standing resentment against what they see as a, a very imperialist ruling class in the north. Um, uh, obviously, that tied into tied into the Islamist movement of the last sort of few decades there's been this kind of growing antipathy towards the government uh, and it and it kind of explodes in uh, unfortunately literally in some cases in in terrorist attacks and and small battles and and kind of flare-ups of this uh, wider sort of it's called the Moro conflict uh, essentially what it is is a, it's a struggle for independence uh, they call it the banks of Moro the, the nation of the Moro people uh, and so that is what's kind of been leading up to the point at which we get to Marawi. Right. So before that, I remember there used to be, you know, the the, the MILF. They were uh, jihadists, right, in in uh, the Philippines. I guess I want to know, how did ISIS take root? You know, because like you said, there is this historical backdrop of, you know, fighting between Muslim groups and, you know, the government. How did ISIS take root there? So you've got... Basically, it's a story of splinter cells. So you start off with the MNLF, the, the Moro National Liberation Front. That then, they get more dis, dis, disaffected with the movement. Then there's the MILF, and then the more violent uh, Bangsamoro, uh, Bangsamoro Islamic Freedom Fighters. 
So those two then continue to carry the torch for this independence movement uh, until some deals are brokered, but then they splinter off when this a, pre, a peace process with Manila stalls uh, and, and the leaders of the MILF are accused of corruption and, and kind of taking money off the back of the peace process. So then in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, uh, when the global jihadist movement's uh, sort of in full swing and Al-Qaeda is carrying out attacks all over the world, there's a sort of personal connection between the brother of... Uh, a brother-in-law of Osama bin Laden, and uh, he marries a Filipina woman, um, and then become, begins channeling money towards uh, her home country. And then you get this kind of more uh, radical, more Islamist movement in the South. Uh, and that's where you get this uh, group called Abu Sayyaf, uh, which basically is an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. Um, led by a guy called Isnilon Hapalon, who was very involved in the Marawi battle. Um, right. And then you get several kind of big, high-profile uh, bombing campaigns in the Philippines, the biggest of which is one, uh, in, is one on a, a super ferry, basically, uh, parked outside of Manila in 04 that killed, I think, several dozen people. Um, so then, that leading up to now... Uh, when you get the kind of, in, in the sort of 2013, 2014, then you get this renewed wave of Islamist sentiment there, sort of inspired by the stuff that's going on in the Middle East. Uh, and in 2014, uh, Islam Hapalon sort of pledges allegiance to al-Baghdadi uh, and, and kind of coins this ISIS in the Philippines, essentially. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that starts the ball rolling for the kind of attacks that lead up to Marawi. I think another. I think a lot of people want to know, like, how was, how was it possible that they could go in there? I mean, the way they went into Marawi was similar to how ISIS kind of ran into like Mosul, for example. But for me, it's like, well, I didn't. I don't know how did that happen so easily in the Philippines. Well, there's been a kind of disconnect between the north and the south in the Philippines anyway, and it's really highly sort of densely jungle and stuff that the the army and the government don't really. Uh, can't really get into. So for years and years, there have been loads of routes uh, and runs kind of with these different groups running uh, running guns and material through the jungle. So the, the, this kind of, the kind of ways that they can ferry their, their um, arsenal and everything else is really well established. Uh, and there's been sort of little attempt from the army to kind of stymie that. They, they kind of tend to go in when things kick off. Um, so, I mean, essentially what happens in Marawi is that you have these different small pockets of, of fighters that are just waiting for the signal, essentially, when this one gun battle kicks off in, on the outside of town. Uh, and the second that gun battle ends and the, the kind of Maute fighters uh, who are led by two brothers, who I'm sure we'll get into in a moment, uh, they kind of flee into the centre of town. Everyone mobilises and they just completely run the local forces down. Uh, and it, it happens in like a matter of minutes, really. There's no, there's no resistance from police or, or military there. So they just turned up at Marawi, like fully armed, ready to go? Yeah, and, and, and Marawi is an extremely significant city. It's, it's kind of the only city in the whole of the Philippines that is, in inverted commas, officially Islamic. So there are certain aspects of Sharia that are still kept there. Uh, it's, it's chock full of these kind of really historic, pretty 
minarets and mosques and all this kind of architecture um, and it's and it's one of the sort of major hubs in the area so it's seen by a lot of the uh, Islamists there as the, a kind of natural headquarters for a caliphate if there were one on Mindanao. Okay, so they wanted Marawi to kind of be their Raqqa, but in the Philippines. Exactly, it's exactly what it was, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mention uh, Mosul as well, because there are a lot of kind of, uh, there are a lot of crossovers, what I've told with friends that I travel with on when I reported on the, the conflict there, they said that the kind of... Uh, the, the methods of fighting and the, and the simple look of the place when it had been kind of almost won back by the army was very similar to the way that Mosul was destroyed as well. Yeah, I think from the footage I saw, those guys, those jihadists in, in Marawi were kind of using the same urban um, warfare techniques, you know, like you said, like you saw in, in Mosul and other places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's stuff like, you know, knocking holes through walls in, in buildings so that you can kind of rat running between them uh, and sort of install snipers all over the town, try and sort of cut off the army wherever they're going. Um, they use the uh, they use the mosques as kind of turrets on which to launch RPG attacks. Um, I spoke to a couple of privates in the, in the military that said that uh, one of them had, had taken out, I think it was 13 men in, in one attack. So uh, that, that was a big, big sort of... Um, big part of the, the fighting there. And, and then we were speaking to Marines, you know, the Marines in the Philippines are no mugs, you know, they know what they're doing and they've been fighting against these sort of Islamist terrorists for many, many years. And they were saying they'd really not been prepped for this kind of work at all. They're used to fighting in the jungle, fighting in the mountains, even fighting at sea in the islands that kind of protrude off of Mindanao. Yeah. Um, they're not used to urban warfare whatsoever and it, and sort of po progress was pain painfully slow at times you know just inching sort of me you know, inch by inch into the middle of the city um and then some were telling us that they they've been fighting people as little as a couple of meters away really just around the side of doors and around the side of these holes they blasted in buildings so it's pretty it's pretty intense stuff um, yeah i'd say so at what point in the uh, the battle for morari did you arrive I I came sort of towards the tail end of it actually. So when I was there, the the, the military were kind of uh, pushing into the centre of a town called Mapandi. Uh, there are about the, the military was telling us there are about eighty fighters left and about two dozen uh, hostages that they'd taken, and they were holed up in this complex, a mosque complex, right in the middle of the old city. So it really had ground down to its final knockings the the, the battle, but. Um, they really didn't have much of a clue when it was going to end then. I mean, they kept saying sort of manana, but it was clear that it was going to go on for a while. Um, and, the, and the techniques, they, they basically almost given up on advancing by foot into the centre of the city by that point. They were just trying to bomb, bomb the fighters out. Um, even that was kind of a bit contentious because of, obviously, the, the historical significance of the mosques themselves. Um, you know, the, the sort of just, the, I guess, uh, PR people would call it the optics of uh, yeah. destroying tons of uh, ancient mosques isn't particularly good if you're trying to win over the local population. Um, and they were, it was bizarre really, they were bombing with these old OV-10 bombers, but in, in tandem they'd have two of them going at a time and they'd be like clockwork. So I can't remember what it was, it was one in the morning and one raid in the afternoon. And all the fighters would do, they'd just go down into these sort of old preserved sewer systems, wait for the bombs to fall, and then come back up again. It was doing almost nothing. So 
Um, it took, I think it took a good month after that for the, for the battle to even end against 80 guys. So that's kind of how entrenched it was at that point. And what did the city look like at that point? Absolutely demolished. Um, yeah, yeah we, got, we got pretty close to the front line and it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, again, like you mentioned Mosul, it was, uh, I was told it was pretty much similar kind of level of destruction to that. Um, I can't imagine how the people who are now supposedly coming back to their homes are living there. It was an absolute, uh, it was just sort of Armageddon in there. It was, the buildings just falling apart as we were walking around them, you know, they were just completely torn to shreds. I remember seeing it on the social media, like I think on Twitter, there were people literally in Marawi just filming like, these guys have just turned up and we don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden there were executions happening in the street. Um, how many of the ISIS guys actually went into the city? So I got told some like really high figures up in the high hundreds, uh, others in the low hundreds. So let's just let's just say, I don't know, four to five hundred rebels then that, that, that took this city. Um, yeah. But that that's a bit of a rough estimate as well, because honestly, with this battle, I've never come across another situation where people were so conflicted about the sort of uh, sort of base facts of the thing as well. I think it's because it took, I mean, one is that it took them by complete surprise. So they yeah. didn't really have any clue that this was going to happen. I mean, there, there were signs, obviously, but the, the, the government was really woefully underprepared. And I think it just adds to the idea that the government is very, very distant from this. Um, they tend to think of this as a, as a kind of almost a barbarian conflict, you know, going on somewhere that's wildly different from where they are. Um, a lot of the, all the media is based in Manila, hundreds of miles north. They don't really think of it as something on their turf. It's something that's just uh, a very uh, distant and an alien thing. And I think that the, the lack of clarity over a lot of the figures just kind of plays into that and sort of is yes. symptomatic of them not really caring in, in some sense it's even physically separate right because it's Marawi is on one of the islands away from the mainland isn't it yeah um, Mindanao is the island that Marawi is on and right. to get to to get to Marawi from Manila it would either take you know even us we flow from Manila to get there and it even it's taking sort of a two to three hour flight and about seven or eight hours in a car uh, and that's a quick way of getting there. Otherwise, you've got to go over land and ferry, and it's going to take you about two days. So Jesus. it's it's very... I mean, looking at the geography of the Philippines, it's it's a wonder it stays together as a nation anyway. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you're getting to a conflict which is about as far flung from the capital as it's possible to be. I mean, Mindanao, where Marawi is, is just the tip of a peninsula that goes down towards Indonesia. Uh, and that's where a lot of the, the kind of uh, Islamist uh, activity has gone on pretty much under the radar of any sort of authority for a while. Yeah. And what kind of, uh, what kind of weaponry and equipment do they bring in to Marawi? Because when I first started seeing the pictures, you know, it looked very ragtag to begin with. And then when the battle kind of pushed further into the city, they seemed to, you know, the, the big weapons seemed to come out. Yeah, I mean, we... Again, it's a bit sort of sketchy, the information that we were getting, but it, it seems that at the start when the, uh, the fighters first mobilized, they just had 
they were kind of a ragtag bunch. They've just got, they're just carrying AKs, pistols, and other kind of weaponry, uh, pretty pretty sort of basic stuff. Um, but I think as they had arsenals that were uh, basically hidden in in people's homes, in 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 sort of religious buildings uh, that they'd been storing there for months and months. So when when the kind of battle sort of uh, retreated into the heart of the city, they had these ready-made sort of banks of weaponry that they could call on. So then you've got RPGs, sniper rifles, and other kind of uh, more um, heavier kind of equipment. I didn't know that. So so ISIS, the ISIS Filipino guys, already had been there for months before storing weapons in preparation yeah yeah so this is what we heard i mean and there'd been a number of small attacks building up to this point um so they basically the the uh the philippine isis led the the group that actually started the attack that they called the malte group after these two brothers omar and abdullah malte um and they're kind of these they're kind of seen as these almost like just kind of local local lads kind of thing um, and they led this this group of uh, fighters and they'd already planted weaponry in the city. They were very well known in the community. Um, so really it's not, it's not a, it, it was something that was coming and it's something that they were preparing for for some time. They had, they had attacked, uh, I think it was an attack on a sawmill uh, several months before and they, they beheaded a few guys there. Um, they'd sprung a few guys from a local prison. I think it might have even been in Marawi. Um, and then they, they carried out a number of different attacks. Um, There's one that I actually wrote about in a story that was, that was called, uh, that was in a, a small town of Boutig, which is kind of near Marawi on the lake, which is this sacred lake for the people there. Um, and they'd left, uh, they'd left a, uh, like a message scrawled on a chalkboard, basically, in a school that they'd, they'd run through. And it said, get ready for the day. So this was something that had clearly been highly planned. It was figured out. And uh, when they kind of mobilized, it was, it was like mobilizing a small army, really. Right. And how much coordination goes on between, you know, ISIS in the Philippines and, you know, ISIS proper, as we know it in the Middle East and Iraq and Syria? It's hard to know because for so many years, the Islamist insurgency in the Philippines had been going on, uh, you know, without any influence or kind of inspiration, or perhaps not inspiration, but any kind of uh, cooperation with those in the Middle East. So it was its own separate conflict. It had its own key players, um, you know, the MILF and the BIFF. These aren't necessarily groups which were coordinating with anyone in the Middle East. I think that ISIS for for these guys was more of an inspiration or a rallying cry than, uh, than anything else. Um, there were, one of the uh, generals suggested to us that they had encountered, literally count on one hand, guys from the Middle East and then one or two from Singapore and neighboring nations. Uh, but basically overall, this is like a Filipino uh, conflict uh, with, with this kind of uh, sort of, transnational brand of ISIS that's been sort of stamped on it. One of the, the, the commanders who took us into the front line, basically, he said that they'd found people from Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Um, I had no reason to kind of uh, suspect that he was, wasn't telling the truth, but I didn't hear that from anyone else. So 
I, you know, I, I don't know. I think that it's a very um, useful thing, perhaps, for the military to say to, to get more support for their action if they're going to say that they're mili- Middle Eastern fighters. Um, possibly not for me to speculate, though. I think it, I, I do think it was mainly, though, a, a Filipino conflict. Speaking to this guy, Pavel, uh, he follows all the kind of ISIS international cells quite closely. Um, and he was telling me that ISIS in the Middle East perhaps not sent fighters, but he said they'd sent money to the Filipinos. Um, like literally, he said they actually transported the money. It wasn't like for a bank transfer. They managed to get money out there. Uh, did you hear anything about that? I, I didn't. Um, what I did hear was from local sort of religious leaders and I guess you could call them sympathizers or maybe sort of anti-government um, activists. Yeah. who said that, was saying kind of some cryptic things about getting support from brothers in the Middle East. Um, some kind of, uh, yeah, some kind of support coming from, from foreign land. But I, I, didn't, I didn't hear anything concrete that I was kind of prepared to, to put down in writing. So it's interesting that, that uh, he's, he's found that. I, I mean, it certainly, it certainly would, uh, would not be a stretch to imagine that that would be the case, especially when ISIS were making sort of glitzy videos of uh, the stuff that the, the Marawi fighters were doing there. So, yeah, that would make sense. And so now that the battle is over now in Marawi, in terms of, you know, that whole uh, period where they were had the city under siege, but what's going on now? Because I know that, you know, it hasn't just gone away. Um, the jihadi militancy there is definitely getting worse from what I've read. Maybe you can tell us what's next. Yeah, it was interesting. That, I mean, what what actually got me involved in heading there to report? I report in the Philippines anyway, but what, what kind of spurred me to head down there for an extended amount of time was that I saw a, an activist lecture in Berlin where I'm based, and there was a guy, a Maranao local guy, who was talking about the kind of destruction of the city and what he thought was kind of an ethnic cleansing attempt by the government, basically to try to rebuild the city, but without any of the consent of the people that had been living there for, for hundreds of years, uh, those people. So what's happening now is really, it could be really febrile, it could be really dangerous. Um, essentially, the, the city is ruined. Um, there are thousands of people still in, in refugee camp, IDP camps, rather, uh, around the region. There is. When I was there, I think some people that were dealing with the aid supplies said that there are as little as a quarter of what they needed. Um, you know, the Philippines has gone through plenty of disasters in recent history. They're still not recovered from the t- 2013 typhoon. Um, so they're a country that's extremely underfunded uh, and, and stuff just isn't getting to these people. Um, so this is kind of breeding more resentment and... and you know, not that there was, not that there was a lack of uh, resentment to begin with, um, and that's exacerbated by uh, the idea that Maltese were kind of freedom fighters in some sense. That's something that you hear everywhere. The idea that they're just local guys fighting for their identity. Um, people would balk if you started speaking about ISIS or affiliations with the Middle East. That's not really something that locals, uh, you know, readily identify with this whole battle. Um, and then it was interesting speaking to some government workers or local sort of organisers there that were talking about the potential of Marawi, even as the bombs were falling, as a kind of tourist destination. Um, I think we, we sat... It's, it's crazy. Like, literally, you could hear 
you you could hear the bombs going off in the background, and we're sitting next, sitting in the city, some miles away. And one woman was telling us that you know Marawi would make an excellent place with its waterfalls of white water rafting and adventure tourists and backpackers, and you know they could build up hostels and hotels and make it this beautiful place on the river. And it was kind of, it was, I mean, it was really bizarre hearing yeah. someone being so brazen about that. You know, even yeah, about a month before it's even been the battle has been won. Is it true that um, there were, I heard that, I read this report, I don't know if it was just hype, but it was saying that there were like local drug gangs and even other jihadi forces that used to fight the government were kind of teaming up with the soldiers to drive the ISIS Filipino guys out of Marawi. Um, I've heard a mix, I've heard that, but I've actually heard it on both sides. So I've heard that the drug runner, I mean, there's a huge drug epidemic in the Philippines, not that that justifies what the government's doing there. Sure. Um, but I've heard conflicting sides of this, one side saying what you're saying, that the, the drug guys were teaming up with anti-terror forces. Um, on the flip side, I've heard that the actual, the, the drug runners were kind of keen to stir the pot and keep the government weak, and they were actually channeling funds to the uh, Islamists. So... I mean, I, I, the, there are certain clans and families and, and kind of mafias down there in the south that are extremely strong. Um, I, would, I would be absolutely not surprised at all if that was the case on either side, to be honest. And I, I wouldn't even be surprised if it was happening on both sides just to kind of keep things, um, keep things in flux and just, uh, just to keep them making a profit. Yeah, it would make sense. Um, can you talk about... I know you, you know, don't, don't worry if you can't talk about it, but I know you're going to do this thing with the uh, the Christian uh, militias in the Philippines. I mean, can you talk about that at all? This is just an example of how desiccated the kind of militant makeup is in Mindanao. That not only is the Islamist movement splintered off into about half a dozen major movements, but also there's now a Christian armed group uh, called the Red, Red God's Defenders. Uh, they're like kind of bivouacked out in the middle of the jungle as well, um, spouting a lot of sort of anti-Islamic uh, propaganda and uh, allegedly fighting in, in small sort of uh, attacks here and there. It's so difficult to know if they're all talk or if they actually are something. Um, I spoke to a guy who was a photographer for one of the leading newspapers out in the Philippines. And the way he described meeting these guys, he described it almost as like a stage-managed show. He, right. he knew some of the guys there. They were like, hey, do you want to scoot? They came out, started burning a load of ISIS flags, and he took a picture. I, 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 was, I was pretty, uh, I don't know, I didn't, trust, I didn't trust exactly what he was saying. I don't really trust that they're anything more than a bunch of guys who wanted a kind of a stick a stick a flag in the soil really and, and kind of stake a claim for Christians in the region. Um, I'd, I'd be, I'd certainly be shocked if that, you know, you heard anything major about them in the near future. I don't think they're going to be any fights or anything like that. A lot of photos posing with guns and masks and then like back to business. What about the, uh, the communist fighters though? Cause they're very, a very real uh, militant force in the jungles, right? The communist insurgency as well, that's been going on sort of the same amount of time as the Islamist movement, you know, no surprise there, um, both kind of struggling against what they see as an imperialist government. Um, that one has kind of lulled in recent years, uh, but of course Duterte being the kind of firebrand that he is, 
uh, he's now offered people sort of money to kill any communists, uh, which is a great way of uh, serving justice in your country. But as far as I'm aware, it's like it's a part of the the national sort of the national uh, political makeup that's really been on the wane in the last few years. Um, people are joining these communist forces, but they're very very small. Um, especially compared to what's just happened in Malawi. Okay, okay. Um, I feel like we should talk about Duterte as well because, he, I mean, you know, he's quite the character, right? He's come out with these, uh, you know, death squads against the drug dealers. You just said he's uh, even paying people to kill the communist fighters. I mean, do you think he's uh, fueling a lot of this? Yes, in short. <laughs> um, he... He loves, I mean, you know, you could name one or two other world leaders that are similar like this, but he loves a inflammatory statement to kind of uh, take the attention away from some of the ills that he's helped. So um, he's used the Islamist insurgency as something to kind of boost his own credentials as a defender of the people. He's actually from Mindanao. Um, so he's someone, he was mayor of Davao for, for, I think, almost two decades, which is the main city on Mindanao. So he... He's been kind of wound up in this conflict forever. So when this uh, boutique attack that I mentioned earlier happened and they've scrawled this sort of message of warning on the chalkboard, uh, he actually took to a, took to a stage in uh, Laos on a, on a government trip and told them to sort of, in quotes, bring it on. So he was, he was very clear that he was up for a fight um, and he's been kind of providing a lot of material to the, to the military to sort of uh, flatten the city during the... During the uh, battle for Marawi. And how much how much support does the Turte have? Because he does seem like an absolute madman. Uh, you would be amazed if you went to the Philippines how popular he is. He really? is I've never I've never been to a country where a leader is as popular as him. Um, you know, we were well this is I, I give you an example of the kind of cognitive dissonance that's going on in, in Mindanao. Like we were in Marawi looking at this completely demolished city there are people talking to us about how the government and the, you know government and Duterte doesn't care about them and they just the government wants to flatten their city and then at the end of the conversation me and a colleague are saying okay is there anything else you'd like to say and all these guys and all these kids from the local area they put out their hands in the Duterte fist which is this kind of like a, almost like a black power kind of signal and yeah. they start screaming his name down the street because they love him so much so that's the kind of uh, weird situation it's in with the politics there um he's like a cult figure i guess totally cult of personality like you know he said all of this hideously misogynistic stuff um he's attacked the pope he's attacked obama when he was president um he has kind of sidled up to the chinese and, and sort of like flung a finger up at, at the americans so he's seen as this sort of strong man uh, you know a very traditional strong man leader but also he's kind of picked the drug war as his uh, way of sort of seizing more popularity. And it really has worked. I mean, there, you don't have to go far in Manila, for example, to see the kind of ravages of the drug trade. It's everywhere. What is it? Heroin is the worst thing? It's, uh, it's shabu, which is a kind of like, it's a really... Uh, kind of like meth, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So it's the, it's the kind of stuff that you would see in like Yabba in, in other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, you get whole communities that are just torn to pieces by it. Um, and in the South, there's loads of sort of drug kingpins that are bringing it in from abroad because, you know, no one's keeping an eye on the ports. It's really easy to do that kind of thing. 
Um, so yeah, he is kind of, this is all somehow tied together with Islamism as well. Uh, like we've mentioned before, the drug trade and, and the kind of uh, Islamist rebels, there's a very strong link between the two of them. Um, and this sort of general atmosphere that I think that it almost helps the Islamist narrative really because they know that if they they do something they're going to get a fight out of it. Um, they know that if they attack a small group of guys in the rainforest somewhere that Duterte is going to come out guns blazing and that helps them obviously win or sort of that helps them with what they want to do. So um it doesn't bode well for the future, no. It sounds like they both need each other to survive in a way. Exactly, yeah. And I don't see that changing anytime soon either. He had this very public announcement where he was like, yeah, go and kill them, do what you have to. Is that still going on? Yeah, yeah, the drug war just keeps rolling on. Um, I've been reporting on it for several years now. Uh, it's, it's, I'd have to say it's probably one of the grimmest experiences I've had as a reporter, just the kind of endless piling up of bodies, uh, mostly in Metro Manila, you know, just completely pointless deaths, um, inaction or inability to kind of address the underlying problems from government. They don't, they really don't care. And even Duterte said to him, said to the public that, uh, that it's a war on the poor. He's killing poor people who are the addicts and not the kind of people who are selling the drugs. It's, uh, if you hear the rhetoric that comes out of that guy's mouth, it's unbelievable. How, how do people accept that? Like, oh, it's a war on the poor. That's outrageous. Yeah, if you go into some of the, you know, the, some of the worst slum areas of Manila where people were, there was, I mean, at the height of this thing a couple of years ago, people were just drop, going dead. Uh, people were just getting killed, like, every single night. There would be armed police coming through and just murdering people. And still, they say, well, you know, the drug crime has gone down and if you're going to mess about, then you're going to kind of live by the sword, die by the sword. And there's just, it's really strange to hear people say that. Some of whom have even lost their loved ones, you know, to this war. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I get the feeling that despite the antipathy to the government in the South and Mindanao, there's some kind of affection for him as, for once, someone that doesn't come from the, the sort of anointed classes or sort of a really wealthy family that's kind of made it out of, Mindanao and into Manila essentially and I think even despite the sort of you know rain of bombs and, and the police killings people still I guess it's just another example of how screwed up the, the connection is between Manila and Mindanao that a guy can literally be going around murdering people you know claiming that he's shot drug dealers with Uzis in his youth uh, and he's still like the most popular guy on, in town interest i think it says a lot about politics because you know as is often the case in almost every single country on the world the kind of elite classes by now end up end up kind of ruling the political kind of spectrum so i guess when you do get a guy like Duterte, as awful as he is there's always that bit like well he's our guy you know what i mean yeah i think no no more than with him as well because the, the philippines is like a, is sort of kleptocracy par excellence like it's there are just like a couple of dozen families who own everything and if right. you go back through the history of the presidents of the country uh possibly you know not including marcos's regime uh every single position of power has been filled by a prominent family in the philippines 
Um, they're just, it's, it's nepotism, it's cronyism. Uh, they take all the wealth. Um, I mean, another part of the conflict in Marawi is that there are huge amounts of mineral resources there, huge amounts of hydroelectricity and other kind of power. All of the taxis go north to Manila. They're all owned by big companies and big families in Manila. The locals don't see a penny of it. Uh, and so you have this region that is minerally rich, but sort of materially extremely poor, um, which obviously is replicated all over the world. But I think it, that adds to this feeling of deep, deep resentment in Marawi. I think in that case, you know, it's unfortunate, but not completely shocking that people down there do want to fight the government at all costs. They have very little to lose. Um, yeah. They, you know, they don't see a way out of the situation as it stands. Um, the, the process of just kind of ransacking their homeland, which is also a historic and ancient, a sacred land, uh, has been going on for so long now that they just don't see any alternative but to fight. Uh, and that's, I think that that's a more potent uh, driver of the conflict than even the, the kind of Islamist wave from ISIS outwards. Uh, I think that this is something that you know, the Philippines itself as a country is, is a country that's always been colonised and subjugated by outsiders. Um, and it's left the country in a very sort of awkward to define national sort of sense of itself. And then even within that, you get Mindanao, which feels that it's, it's a colony of Manila. So you get this kind of double whammy of, of this kind of colonial sort of uh, colonial subjugation over the years. You know, it's like outside colonialism and then inside colonialism at the same time. Meta colonialism, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, meta colonialism. It's, uh, yeah. it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy how that place has been screwed so many times. Do you have plans to go uh, back to Marawi? I'm going back there in a couple of months. Um, I'm gonna do a story around that region, but more associated with the drug war actually this time around. Um, yeah, it's it's to do with a certain character that's been a very sort of prominent played a pro very prominent role in the drug drug war um and how he's kind of linked to the political stuff that's going on there so that should be a it should be an interesting trip i mean aside from everything that's going on there it's it's one of the most amazing looking places i've ever seen in my life like like beautiful blue lakes seas palm forests mountains everything i mean if it weren't under siege it would be it would like they say in the, the local government there it would be a tourist paradise it's unbelievable shame so, about the jihad and all the fighting eh? yeah exactly um yeah i mean we would we would we would travel for like five minutes outside because it's, it was such a self-contained conflict at that point that you go outside marawi for a few minutes and then you've got these beautiful towns and villages everyone knows everyone you know fresh fruit, lovely outdoors, schools, kids playing everywhere, you know, it's like a paradise, except for this sort of dark underlying political resentment that, that is kind of, you know, bubbling up in these horrible ways. It's always fascinated me that, like when I've been out um, reporting on conflict, when once you're off the, you're out of the combat zone, very quickly, it, you could be somewhere completely different. You know, I always find that just, just a fascinating aspect of war, how like communities around it, are just like, fuck it, carry on, keep going. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's... I mean, it's one of the few things in those situations that kind of gives you hope, I guess, that <laughs> no matter what's going on, you know, on someone's doorstep, they're going to stay strong and sort of live their life no matter what's happening. Okay, Sean, I think that's excellent, mate. Um, where can people get hold of you? Where can they follow your work? 
Yeah, people can find me on Twitter, it's S. Williams Journo, and uh, my website is Sean Williams Writes as well. So they can find me there. I'm writing for a load of publications, there's a lot of different stuff. Okay, mate, thank you very much, and good luck when you go back to the Philippines. Cheers, mate, thanks. Cheers, mate, thanks. That was Sean Williams talking about his time amongst the battle for Marawi in the Philippines. This episode was sponsored by DefensePost.com. If you like what you heard here, there are bonus episodes at Patreon.com forward slash Popular Front. For the price of like exchanging one coffee a month, you could get all the bonus episodes. I'm planning to do them a few times a month, if not every week, if I have time. Thank you very much to everyone who managed to make the Patreon hit $500 a month. I promise that if it does hit $500 a month, then Popular Front will become a weekly show. It will be, don't worry, that's going to keep happening. It uh, means a lot more work for me. <laughs> I didn't realise, I guess, at the time how much work this would be. But, you know, it's okay. It's, it's enjoyable and I know everybody else likes it. So, uh, definitely going to keep going. Thank you very much to the $30 Patreons. Uh, I'm going to have a lot more stuff for you guys soon as well. They are Ryan Sandercock, Cole Gannon, Joel Tambusi, LH, Aleame Leroy, Andrew Stover, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, and Teddy. To keep up with all things Popular Front, please. To keep up with all things Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. We now have a website. Well, kind of a website, basically. What was jakehammerhand.com slash popular front. Um, I bought a URL so there could be uh, like a divert. So it's popularfront.co. Pass it along. Music in this episode. The intro is by Home. The outro by Son of Old. Check his music out. He makes loads of different stuff. I'm really into it. It's soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. Oh, and also, if there's anyone out there who can help me with the sound, because I'm doing this on my own in my flat using GarageBand, and I am too stupid to even really work out how to properly work GarageBand out. So if there's anyone else out there who can help me with the sound on Popular Front and is like willing to get involved, I could probably find some money from somewhere to give you to sort a few episodes out. Do get in touch, just get in touch on Twitter or popularfrontpodcast at gmail.com.